um, I would like to bring up our guest speaker, Pastor David Park. Um, he is an associate pastor at Hillside LA. So he, uh, Pastor Sam Coe has um, graciously invited us to uh, bring Pastor David here. I know we have been going over through the book of Acts, but we will be taking a break today, a little bit, um, and he will be speaking. And I'm sure he'll make a little bit of introduction too. If you can just, yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, just give me one second, yeah? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'd, I just want to say that um, I'm really privileged to be here. Um, I feel um, really like uh, just observing you guys, and you know, you guys are a small church, but I mean, there's a lot of power in that. It's not about quantity, it's about quality, right? So um, I mean, I was just really blessed by your praise and the intimacy that you guys do have. So thank you for inviting me here. Um, all right, so before I start, um, I just want to say that, um, you know, um, Everyone's uh, sanctification process looks different. So, um, you know, if it sounds like I'm being judgmental, I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm preaching out of love. So everyone's sanctification process looks different. Um, also, I'm going to share some details from my own personal life. So um, in no way am I glorifying uh, my past uh, life affiliated with gangs and stuff like that. Not at all. And um, so, yeah, with that, um, you know, today's message is call called The Cost of Discipleship. Um, previously, um, you know, I was preaching on kind of like a short series. Um, before this, I actually preached on biblical repentance, okay? And um, when I preached on biblical repentance, uh, what I explained was that uh, biblical repentance isn't about, like, you just stop sinning. What it was actually about was you no longer um, placing your trust in your own works righteousness. So when John the Baptist was, you know, preaching repentance, he wasn't telling these Pharisees to stop sinning because they were already, like, really good at keeping the law. Uh, their uh, sin was uh, moral, re moral religiosity, okay? So, um, but the question is, once you do receive Christ and you repent and are saved, like, what's next? So that's the question. So after you repent, uh, the question is, what now? Like, how are you supposed to live? Um, are you supposed to just live like you were prior to your conversion, um, but no, everything in this world has a function and a purpose. Um, cups hold water, uh, scissors cut things, um, everything created has a purpose and a function. There's a reason that we're called the salt uh, of the earth. It suggests at least uh, three things, purity, um, preservation, and flavor. Um, in the Roman world, salt actually symbolized purity because of the process of the seawater um, and the use of the sun in acquiring salt. Salt also stood for preservation because salt was used to preserve food, such as uh, meats. Salt was also understood in the sense of giving flavor, um, and it would only continue to have a purpose if it continues to remain salty. So Jesus calling the disciples salt was actually a metaphor that grounded the disciples in reality. They had a purpose to perform, and it was here on earth. Sadly, though, there's a lot of believers that live today just for themselves. They're often indifferent about the lives of others or what Christ has called us to do. They may, in fact, not even be aware that they've been called to fulfill a certain purpose. But the fact is, the Lord Jesus did leave us with certain instructions. Immediately before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the disciples a mandate, and this mandate is also known as the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Um, and this is the main text. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ mandated his disciples to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded them. But in order for us to make disciples, we have to first become disciples ourselves. What this means is that we need to take some time to learn about how the disciples lived. You can't teach others to be disciples if you yourself are not a disciple. Now, I remember as a gang member in my past, um, I actually knew what my function was, what my purpose was. Um, sadly, it was my duty to literally go and try to hurt and harm other gang members. Um, it was the duty of, it was my duty to spread the name of my gang. Um, I had a duty to teach other new gang members the rules of the gang and the rules of gang life. Um, there were certain rules that my gang had, and every gang member had to live and abide by these rules. But this isn't restricted to gangs. Companies have mission statements and vision statements. They have sets of rules and guidelines that the employees are commanded to follow. And it's no different for Christians. Now, for me, and I'm sure many others, one of the most notable things that stick out to me when reading the Word is learning about how the disciples actually lived. Um, if we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by <laughs> praising God and having favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, sorry about that. So, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, from this passage, the thing that stands out the most to me is that these believers literally sold their possessions and shared all things in common. So we have to ask ourselves, what would possess a person to share all their, sell all their possessions and share it with people that they barely even knew? For me, after thinking about this, the only thing that I can come up with is that they must have really believed. Uh, they really believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and this is the first major point. The early church really believed, and they took the Lord's commands literally, and they knew that discipleship is not cheap, it is expensive. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus spoke to the disciples and told them not to be anxious. He reminded them that it was the Father's desire to give them the kingdom, and he reminded them that where they stored their treasure would be where their hearts were. And as such, he said, go sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, there's going to be a lot of people who contest this and say that Christ didn't mean that literally. He meant it figuratively. But to those who say this, I challenge them to explain how you can take this uh, figuratively. And I'm sure they cannot. There's nothing really figurative about selling your possessions and sharing it with people, sharing with the poor. In fact, every disciple of Christ had the same mind. All the disciples shared a common stock of which Judas was once treasurer of. 
Now, I remember as a gang member, I did a lot of crazy things. Um, me and my friends would actually literally try shooting people and trying to kill them and whatnot. And in fact, during this time, I also got shot when I was 23 years old. Um, the reason why we did these things were because we actually believed in this lifestyle. Um, if you were a gang member and your older friend were to tell you to shoot that person or harm them, you were to do that. You have to take that command, literally, not figuratively. So in the same way, we have to remember that with Jesus' followers, when he told them, follow me, um, he, he meant this literally. And he said this 13 times in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 uh, to 20, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew's brother, brother casting them into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And again, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 to 22, it says, And going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And once again, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. So these men literally left their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And why did they do this? It's because of what Andrew, Simon, and Peter declared in John chapter 1, verse 41, which is that they had found the Messiah. So my question to you is, have you not found the Messiah? Are you sure that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? And if so, what's holding you back from following him? Are there any things, that, are there any things in your life that you're unwilling to let go now, if you take a look at this quote, I think it really speaks truth. It says, A whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it's possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. And here's another great quote by Paul Washer, which says, We live in a society where you are told that you can love the world and love Christ at the same time, but this is a lie. Now, it's not, by accident, it's not by accident for no reason that the scriptures have recorded the deeds of the early Jerusalem church. This practice of this type of uh, sacrificial love and charity uh, was for the purpose of serving to be an ideal example for all churches to come. Unfortunately, for a lot of churches today, this is considered too extreme. A lot of churches today will say that the reason why the early church practiced this type of generosity was because they believed in the imminent return of Christ. But are we not supposed to believe that the Lord's return is also imminent? Um, for certain, compared to the early church 2,000 years ago, his return is surely more imminent now, is it not? Therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise that the early church grew so rapidly and the modern-day modern church is declining. The truth is the reason that many believers in churches today cannot follow in the example of the early Jerusalem church is because they either don't really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or they don't fully believe in the Lord's promises, or their hearts are still invested here in the world, which is where they're storing and building up treasure. For as it says, where your treasure is, their heart will also be. But what this does mean is that if you were, your, your heart was invested in heaven and the things of heaven, uh, you would be able to have this type of generosity and store up for yourself treasure in heaven. But I'll be honest and say that this type of selflessness, generosity, and love is not easy. It's nearly impossible. Um, it's very, very difficult. 
Um, but just because it's difficult, I don't think we should abandon all attempts to try to be like this. Um, you know, to try to adopt this type of zealousness, this type of lifestyle, um, it should actually be our aim. You know, when you play basketball, you don't just shoot the ball to try to hit the rim. Uh, when you play golf, you're not just trying to get near the hole. You're trying to score, right? So just, like, just in the same way, we should aim for perfection. Uh, we should aim for the goal. We should aim for the prize. But I'm not saying that we need to sell all of our possessions and get rid of everything. That's not what I'm saying. Um, rather, the point is, if God actually called you to do something like that, you should. But at the end of the day, it's really about giving everything that you have to Jesus, right? That's what it is. So the call to discipleship actually requires us to be radically sold out for Jesus. Uh, we have to Lord, love the Lord deeply and honor him with our lives. We have to be f- fully committed to honoring God not only by mouth, but through our actions and in a holistic manner. So don't treat Jesus' commands differently than the plain language so clearly intended. When we do so, we exchange obedience for disobedience. And it's actually only through obedience that we can become liberated to really believe. Discipleship, although it is very straightforward, simple, and clear, it's also something that is not cheap. It is expensive. J.C. Ryle said, There is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have, and they think they have enough. It is a cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer (coughs) now is also famous for a book called um, The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote this in 1937. It was a call to more faithful and radical obedience to Christ, And it was a severe rebuke of comfortable Christianity. And I'd like to reiterate some of his views that he explains in his book. So according to him, cheap Christianity is cheap grace. It's preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. It is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross is grace without Christ. Cheap grace is also the idea that an intellectual accent to belief in Christ is sufficient enough to provide people with the forgiveness of their sins. It leads to people believing that their primary and only duty as believers is to go to church every Sunday and to be assured that their sins have been washed away. Cheap grace is like a vaccination. It gives you just enough of Christ to prevent you from catching the real thing. It prevents us from actually experiencing Christ. Cheap grace is free of charge without any cost. But costly grace is actually quite different. Costly grace recognizes the need for discipleship and leads to it. Not only that, it leads us to becoming serious followers of Jesus. Uh, It is a grace that opens the door to Christ, and it is a a grace of Christian discipleship. However, costly discipleship is not to be confused with human excellence or one's ability. Obedience to Jesus' call is from his initiative, it's his grace, it's his power, um, and never our own. It calls us to be utterly dependent on the one who calls us, and that is Jesus Christ. So Bonhoeffer actually exemplified what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. He knew all about costly grace. He counted the cost and spent a great portion of his life battling Nazi ideology and was committed to teaching the truth and resisting evil. For this, he would actually spend a lot of time in prison for his beliefs and commitment to the Lord. 
Now, the second point is this. True discipleship involves suffering and also involves us giving up all of our rights and privileges for the sake of Christ and honor of God. The call to follow is closely connected to the passion of Jesus, who had to suffer and be rejected so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. And since Christ, also, Christ suffered, he's, and he's the model of our faith, therefore we also ought to suffer if we are his followers. And his, as his disciples, we have to share in his suffering and rejection, and for some, even maybe in his crucifixion. A Christian has to deny themselves and beware of Jesus and themselves. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but not thinking of yourself at all. Only when we become selfless and unaware of the pain of our own cross are we ready to bear the cross for Christ's sake. But we have to also learn to be joyful, though, in all of this. We have to be joyful in every circumstance and take joy in seeing that Christ has deemed us worthy enough to suffer for him as he suffered for us. As it is written in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, for to you has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. For it's through suffering for Christ that we actually enter into true fellowship with him. And as such, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, it says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. There is a cross that awaits every Christian, but the suffering is actually a fruit of an exclusive relationship with Christ. And in the words of Alistair Begg, only when we understand that we are created for his glory can we turn life's trials and toils into acts of worship. True discipleship requires us to learn what it means to struggle with sin, Falling into temptation and having to deal with the guilt associated with it is not what it means to struggle. When you fall into sin, you are giving into it and submitting to it. On the other hand, when you truly struggle with it, it's quite different. The struggle is felt when you resist it and not fall into it. This can be experienced each time you, you fight against the desires of your bodily flesh and deny yourself any gratification. This is one of the ways that we can suffer with Christ. This is what it is meant to die to ourselves. We need to forsake all of our selfish desires and the rights that we believe that we have. We need to understand that although grace has broken all the bounds of legalism and it transcends the law, it does not mean that we are to embrace antinomianism or be anti-law. Instead, we need to understand that it's only he who believes that is obedient and only he who is obedient that really believes. If we say that we believe but don't actually do the things that we believe, we really have to question ourselves and ask if we really believe what we profess and confess to believe. Let's remember that true faith is faith in deeds of obedience. This is true saving faith. One example of suffering um, you know, I gave um, not too long ago when I was preaching this same sermon was about Pastor Sam. He's our senior pastor at Hillside LA. And... Um, He's a great example. You know, we've, since we opened up a new campus, uh, he's been going to about three, three, three uh, he's been preaching three sermons each Sunday, or most Sundays. So, um, you know, he kind of just, obviously he'd like to go home and rest, but he's willing to go through this and kind of suffer it in a sense because he's count, he's, he, he counted the cost of discipleship. And um, so this is one example. And, but the thing is, even though he's suffering, per se, there's a lot of joy uh, in what he does. 
So it's not just work, if anything. But, yeah, the third point is this. True discipleship can also cost you everything, including your very life. Um, in Acts chapter 15, 26, we are told that Judas and Silas were chosen men, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, now, now in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own very life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And this is why throughout the New Testament we see these examples of men giving, of these men giving up everything they have to follow Christ. Uh, the members of the early church knew exactly what the cost of following Christ was. They knew that choosing to become disciples of Jesus could cost them their very lives as it did for Bonhoeffer. We must remember that during this time, getting baptized was one sure way of getting ostracized not only by, your, by the Jewish community, but also by your own family members. Um, getting baptized would automatically place you in the category of apusunagogas, which is put out of the synagogues. This is because you would essentially be excommunicated from the local communities and restricted from being able to partake in the sacred assemblies of the Israelites, having become labeled as an outcast. Nevertheless, we see that those who truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah were willing to pay this price. The reason for their boldness and willingness to put themselves in danger was because they, they knew that Christ had paid a price which they themselves could never pay, and that was payment for their sins. Sadly, though, a lot of Christians in America aren't willing to risk even their reputations for Christ, let alone their lives. Um, a lot of people are worried about being accepted and having people like them. And they're mostly concerned about trying not to offend people who have different beliefs. Most people, most believers in America aren't even willing to sacrifice really much anything at all except maybe a Sunday or two or maybe an hour or two during the week or something like that. They want to be able to live like the world and enjoy the things of the world while simultaneously being faithful and devoted to God. But that's not really possible. You can't really supposed to be a beneficiary of God's blessings which followers of Christ receive and enjoy if you're living like a follower of Satan, which is the God which most of today's society actually worships, whether they do it knowingly or unknowingly. But the true marks of a genuine disciple during the time of Christ were the following, a willingness to make Christ the main priority in their lives and to follow him. They supported those who were called to spread, teach, preach, and preach the gospel of Christ. They had a desire to turn from their sins and to obey the law of Christ. They generously shared their property with other believers as needed, not counting it as their own. They're willing to take up their own individual crosses, 
forsaking their former ways of life and publicly identified themselves as followers. And they were even willing to be persecuted and even martyred for the name of Jesus. And the fact is, these marks that identify true disciples should not have changed. As believers, we should be willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus. If there's anything that we're not willing to give up, it can mean that we might still be stuck in some type of idolatry. For those who have truly encountered the risen Lord will have full assurance that what Christ has promised them will come to fruition. They will receive true peace and joy as well as eternal life and heavenly treasures and as such have no problems forsaking the things of this world. Now at the end of the day, if we too really believe that the word of God is true, shouldn't our lives reflect this belief? Knowing that your family member or your friend will go to hell without Christ should create in us an extreme sense of urgency to pray for them and to do whatever we can for them so that we can save them from judgment and the wrath of God. If you saw a car coming full speed at a stranger even, um, especially your family member or friend, you would probably do whatever you could to prevent them from getting hit. But the thing is this, getting hit by a car is infinitely better than being eternally separated from God. For this reason, we should be very mindful and wise in how we spend our time and the things that God has given us and blessed us with. And we should use these things for the advancement of the gospel and for God's glory. For as is written in Matthew chapter 16, verses 25, verses 25, for whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And it's essential that our personal faith not only consists of personal times of meditation, study, and prayer, but our faith must also be a public one. But this doesn't mean that you need to go overseas and get martyred. It all begins with steps. For example, if you have children, you can start together. You can take your family out to the outreach that I saw you guys post up there earlier, um, or similar outreaches, and begin by just helping the poor and the marginalized. <clears throat> and this is my final point. Discipleship is not meant to be hidden, but it's meant to be public. Jesus called the disciples the light of the world, which indicated that the life of the disciples needed to be visible. Their good deeds and their works were meant to be seen throughout the earth and were meant to point to Jesus Christ as the source of their light. If we flee into invisibility, what that would mean is that we're denying our call to discipleship. Discipleship is not to be hidden from others. It's only supposed to be hidden from ourselves. It has to be visible to other people. We have to be the salt and light in this world those around us. Let us not forget what the very word Christian means. In the early church, the label Christian came about because their behavior, activity, and speech were just like Jesus. The word Christian means follower of Christ or belonging to the party of Christ. And we know that Christ did not keep the reason for his coming uh, secret. Christ made it known that he was the Messiah and that he was, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. As such, his disciples proclaimed, to Je- proclaimed who Jesus was to all people. They didn't hide their faith or keep their discipleship private. And it's because of the way that they lived that they were able to win the favor of all people. Let's remember that we might be the only Bibles that those around us will ever read. Our actions, non-actions, our attitudes will influence whether or not people around us will have any interest in learning about the Christian faith.
Understanding what the church is and what the life of the church is like will help us to understand why being a part of it is so important. Our word church is the translation of the Greek word ecclesia. In Jesus' day, the word meant a group of citizens who had been called apart for a special meeting or assembly. Now apply that to the church. Before you became a Christian, you lived the way that you wanted and you followed your own desires. Then Christ called you. He said, follow me, separate yourselves from others who live according to the world. Be my disciple. You heard him, you responded, and just like I heard and responded, and just like every other Christian heard and responded. We came to Christ, we made a decision to follow him, and as such, we are now called the called out ones. We are the church. So think about the cost of being a disciple. I thought about the cost of joining a gang. Joining a gang only meant three things in life, three things, life in prison, becoming handicapped, or death. Thankfully, though, the Lord saved me in jail, and I made a choice to repent and follow him. I counted the cost, and now I live my life in submission to him. You know, um, just really quick, um, there was a season in my life where I was getting disrespected a lot, um, and it was, it was crazy. Um, but, for example, I went to a fishing trip. Some guy stole my fish, you know, and lied to me. And then the same guy that stole my fish um, ended up um, building a tab on my bill and then also ate my food. And then when I approached him and confronted him about this, this guy not only, he didn't just lie, he put his hands in my face, cursed me out, and then truthfully, man, if this was my old self, I had all kinds of feelings going through me, but um, I decided to just pay for the bill and just walk away. That's it. And pray for the guy. And the truth is, why did I do that? It's not because I'm Jesus or anything like that, but it's because I made a commitment to try to follow Jesus and try to walk in his footsteps and no longer uh, according to the ways of this world. So, but, like, but yeah, um, you know, the great thing is the benefits of actually following Jesus uh, cannot compare to the benefits that I once had as a gang member. Um, as a gang member, I was only guaranteed terrible things that no sane person would ever want. Um, but the crazy thing is at that time, I was all in. Um, at that time, I must have thought that jail, being handicapped, and these things were great benefits, but I was clearly delusional. However, as a disciple of Christ, I'm guaranteed things that money cannot even buy. Um, as a disciple, we get to experience God's goodness, his forgiveness, his presence, his peace and joy. Um, we get to bear good fruit, and most importantly of all, we get to experience true fellowship and communion with God, and we are guaranteed eternal life. There really is no comparison. So with that, I just want to remind you that there is actually a cost to follow Jesus as well as a cost not to follow him. Following Christ has great benefits, though. Not following him has grave consequences. So count the cost, and you will see that it's an easy decision. And I pray that you make the decision if you haven't already made a decision to be a true disciple. For only after you've committed yourself to being a true disciple will you be able to obey Jesus' mandate to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Father God, uh, Lord, I um, just want to thank you for sending your son Christ to 
die for our sins and for just giving us um, new life in you, Lord. So help us, Father God, to really surrender ourselves to you, to count the cost and to follow Jesus, even to the point of death if needed, Lord. So we thank you, we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.